Hello, I'm Paul Evans and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity that provides information and support for those of us living with pain. More information on fundraising efforts is available on the Just Giving page at our website, which is painconcern.org.uk. I think if we can map out what the care that a person with a condition experiencing pain should receive, if we can map that out and get agreement to it, then we can start to hold clinicians, the system, managers to account for delivering it. In this edition of Airing Pain, we'll be looking at how the British Pain Society's Pain Patient Pathways Project should improve the way health professionals manage chronic pain conditions. And, not I hope unconnected with this, we'll also look at the importance of that crucial relationship between doctor and patient, what happens when it goes well and what happens when it breaks down. Jean Smith has numerous health-related conditions, including chronic back pain and depression. She wasn't confident of being able to speak to me by herself, so Jeff Williams, her close friend and support for many years, joined us. The pain can bring on the depression. So when you recognise the signs, I'm not saying I can do a lot about it, but at least I know in a couple of days' time it will ease. When you said you felt the signs of depression coming over you, what does that feel like? You cheesed off. You can't focus on a lot of things. When I am bad, I, I, I sleep a lot. I don't go to the doctors unless I've got to. When you were seeing them, if you went to see your doctor for your pain, what would the doctor tell you? Go and see your psychiatrist. And when you went to see the psychiatrist, what Go and you see your GP. They tend to push you from one to the other when you've got dual diagnosis. So, in other words, they never actually then give you and anything. And I have one doctor. Oh, she's lovely. She sits there. And how are we today, Jean? And I say, I'm not. I feel like saying I'm not a little five-year-old. You know, I am me. I might suffer with depression, mental health problems, but you know, I'm still compass mentos, like you know. Now, we can't comment on individual cases. Indeed, you'll know that we always give these words of caution, that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. But I have to wonder how many people, as in Jean Smith's experience, feel that their health professional does not appreciate their circumstances. My social worker has told me that I am not a very good patient because whenever the doctor asks, or the psychiatrist, how are you, I'm fine. He said, you don't tell people what you like. I said, well, People don't want to hear what you like. People don't want to hear you moaning. Are the doctors very friendly? Or they always greet you in and say, oh, yes, haven't seen you for a while or, you know, tried to build up a conversation with you to find out what's the matter? I did see a locum last winter and I suffer with asthma and I had to have antibiotics. And this locum said to me, you old people are all the same. I said, what do you mean? Don't have enough heat in in the winter. That's what causes it. I went back 
in the May, I think it was, in the spring anyway. And who was there but the same local. And he said, you've got an infection again. So I said, well, tell me now then, doctor. I said, I don't need heating now. What's causing it now then? I said, it can't be a cold house. How did you feel when a GP tells you basically it's your fault? Oh, none of us like being told that. I I try to take it on board and think about it and work out whether they are right or not. And if they are, I try and do something about it. But you say you don't go to the doctors enough. Because all they ever do is give you painkillers. Live on painkillers. I've always maintained that there's help out there for people who are druggies there's help out there for people who are alcoholics and there's help out there for a lot of other things smoking but there's nothing out there that gives you any help or says anything about patients who've been addicted on prescribed drugs I have asked doctors in the past, are these addictive? No. I had one tablet off the doctor and I said, I'm sure I've put on weight since I've had these tablets. Oh, rubbish, she said. I said, I don't think so. It passed. I asked another doctor and he was honest enough to tell me, yes, you put three or four stone on when you take this medication, he said. Hmm. Jean Smith showing how a breakdown in communication with a healthcare professional can lead to a lack of confidence and, in her case, a feeling of worthlessness. The patient's opinion and input may have counted for nothing in years gone by, but in the broader scheme of things, a lot of progress is being made. Now, the British Pain Society is a national organisation. In fact, it's the largest UK voluntary organisation for healthcare professionals working in pain management. So where does the patient's voice fit into this professional organisation? Well, Douglas Smallwood is chair of its Patient Liaison Committee and Pain Concerns' Christine Johnson spoke to him at their Voluntary Sector Seminar in London. A number of years ago, the professional membership decided that it wanted to make sure that the voice of the patient was heard within the work of the society and therefore a decision was made to set up a patient liaison committee. There's currently approximately 10 of us, that is seven people with chronic pain and three healthcare professionals. So it is a committee of both patients and professionals, which I think is very helpful. And we meet about six times a year and we, our objective is to feed into the work of the professional membership of the society. So there's a series, for example, a series of special interest groups dealing with different types of pain um, that the professionals join. And one of our objectives is to make sure that a member of our committee is also present at the meetings of the special interest groups so the views of patients can be built in to their work. Because I chair the committee, I go um, to meetings of the Council of the British Pain Society uh, and can feed in patient views there. Uh, the one point I would emphasise is that uh, there's no, uh, we're not here to um, develop the British Pain Society from a professional organisation to a patient organisation. The Pain Society is a professional organisation and the aim is 
to make sure the professionals have the benefit of the experience, the knowledge and the views of patients. Professional-only organisations do great things. Patient organisations do great things. I think that the great potential of an organisation that makes sure the patient voice is there as well as the professional is that simply together, in my opinion, more can be achieved. So if you're trying to influence government, in my experience, there's nothing more powerful than to have the patient talking to a government minister or the chief executive of a PCT about their experience of the service, what they experience, what they need, and to what extent the uh, service matches up to that. Nothing more powerful than that. However, to move politicians and to move managers, you need more than emotion and experience. You need logic, you need professional understanding of clinical matters, and you need to put the two together. So in my experience, if you're trying to change what services are provided and how they are provided, to make a compelling case to the decision makers, you need a mixture of the patient voice combined with the knowledge, the expertise of the professional. Douglas Smallwood, chair of the British Pain Society's Patient Liaison Committee. Now, the theme of its annual voluntary seminar was Pathways for Pain Management, Giving Them Life. This refers to the Pain Patient Pathways Project, which evolved from the Chief Medical Officer's report of 2008, highlighting chronic pain as a clinical priority and need for a consensus on best practice care pathways. So in 2011, the British Pain Society set up a working group to produce pain patient pathway mapping guidelines. Dr Martin Johnson is the Royal College of GPs UK champion in chronic pain and he's on the executive committee for the pain patient pathways. The British Pain Society has never had any pain pathways before. They've published leaflets on various aspects but they realised to defend pain medicine within the context of UK spending cuts that they had to develop some national pathways that Anybody in terms of clinicians or commissioners or patients can say that these are the overall general pathways that we can follow. And there's five disease areas that we're looking at in terms of pain. There's going to be a general assessment principle. That means wherever a patient presents with chronic pain, these are going to be the basic things that you should do. Then there's one on neuropathic pain, which will partly incorporate the NICE guidelines. There's going to be one on musculoskeletal pain, um, particularly what we call widespread pain, which is similar to fibromyalgia. There's going to be a very quite a complex one on low back pain um, or spinal pain in general. And finally, there's one on pelvic pain from both males uh, and females. One of the things to do, as well as publish them, is going to be a whole implementation strategy uh, and in fact, we've been sat in a meeting this morning of the patient group at the British Pain Society talking about how we should actually try and implement some of these pathways going through primary care. So it'll be a matter of publishing books, getting guidance within all the GP magazines, on radio shows like this, um, newsletters coming out from the British Pain Society and the Royal College, getting patients educated on it, what were the benefits of having patient input in developing the pathways? How, do, how did that work? Right from the word go, when Richard Langford, our president of the British Pain Society, set up this pathway group, 
he decided that we should have, um, rightly so, patient input so we get their experience of having a painful state. And I know talking to some of the patients, it's, it's been difficult sometimes when you start, to, when they are working as the only patient within, within a group of, a, a diverse group of healthcare professionals, sometimes they can feel left out. And I, I think we've, we've had to change the way we work so they, they are inclusive within those pathways so we can get their experience. But actually, the most important part is not going to be in the actual development part, it's actually getting it out there part and making sure they use. That's where patient power, I hope, rules okay. And if a patient feels that their GP is not following their pathway, what can or should they do? That's always an interesting question in any pathway. I think the important thing with pathways, and this is experience with other pathways from other disciplines like respiratory, is that we need to get them locally implemented. So it will be taking the national framework and saying, how do we adopt this locally? Which means that you can then use the resources that exist within your local area or make sure that you, you bid for the resources. Patients are always individuals, and there's going to be instances where the pathway might not be appropriate. This is going to be... But I would hope for 95% of patients with those particular areas, it will be something they can implement. But in terms of the question you asked me, what we've been looking at this morning is ways to empower patients so effectively we give them the information through a variety of sources, through various patient groups. So if they feel that the information is not getting through to their GP, then they can actually ask the GP, is there something more appropriate? They will be hosted on the nationally available site of the Map of Medicine, and I believe that patients do have access rights to that. And in terms of patient education, how did self-management inform the makeup of the pathways and the development? There are several key components that are common to all of the pathways. So, for example, medicines management is one of them, but the other major one is self-management. All the work coming out of groups such as Co-Creating Health, which is the big pilot happening with with self-management, show that self-management works, and it particularly works when patients are supported by other members of the team. And I think it's important for even clinicians to realise that self-management is something that can run alongside other forms of management. So even if you've got a patient that needs a spinal intervention they still need to to self-manage as well. So to the extent we may well have to develop a a specific pathway to give more information about self-management. And we've got people involved, such as Pete Moore, from the pain toolkit, which means that patients hopefully should get information about that. And back to education, how do you hope this will change pain education for health professionals? That does link in with the implementation strategy Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that it will give the necessary information because the pathways are, a, I hope, a very good balance between both evidence-based medicine and a pragmatic approach where the evidence doesn't exist. So it will give a framework for healthcare professionals to manage chronic pain, which is one of the biggest issues that we deal with in medicine.
Dr Martin Johnson talking to Pain Concerns Christine Johnson at the British Pain Society and Patient Liaison Committee annual voluntary seminar. Here's Douglas Smallwood, chair of the Patient Liaison Committee once again. My personal experience as a person with a long-term condition and some pain is that I really want the services to be joined up so that I see the right professional at the right time and in a convenient location. And that's not my experience of the service. I think the pathways will assist with all those points. There was a seminal report uh, two or three years ago, wasn't there, from the Department of Health chaired by Lord Darcy, and he defined quality as having three components, quality of care. One was clinical outcomes, one was patient experience, and the third was patient safety. So a high-quality service achieves those three things. I think if we can map out what the care that a person with a condition experiencing pain should receive, if we can map that out and get agreement to it, then we can start to hold clinicians, the system, managers to account for delivering it. When that isn't mapped out, it makes it rather more difficult to hold people to account. Now, Douglas Smallwood talked about his wish, as a patient, for a joined-up service. Mark Ritchie's a GP in Swansea, and he has a special interest in pain management. In Swansea, we've very recently set up a pain service, which is really in its infancy at the moment, but it has been trialled for almost a year now. And what we've, been, we, we've done is we've taken um, methods of examination of patients and methods of treating patients from pain services all around the country. And we've then combined that into a service which we're now putting forward. Now, part of this is what we call a multidisciplinary assessment, but it's more than just a multidisciplinary assessment. It leads on to multidisciplinary management and an overall holistic approach. So multidisciplinary assessment means we're not only assessing the patient by a doctor on his own. We are using other disciplines. In this particular case, we're using a physiotherapist and we're using a nurse trained in pain, in pain management, and to a lesser or greater extent, we use a psychologist as well. So what do we do? Well, the patient comes before each of us in turn. There might be two of us together if our examinations overlap, but they come to each of us in turn in a roundabout way, so you might have three patients simultaneously, one for each of us, and then rotating. As a doctor, as a physician, I first need to confirm my diagnosis or the diagnosis that's been put in front of me. I need to make sure there aren't any what are called red flags, uh, things that could mean this person needs immediate surgery or immediate hospitalization or maybe underlying things that could point towards cancer, things like that. So my primary task is a medical one initially. Once I've got through that little bit, which really is, is the first five or ten minutes, we then move on to actually questioning the patient further, ask them how long this has been going on for, looking at the modalities of pain, the types of pain they're feeling, then examining them, and then the whole way through giving them feedback. So having done that, they would then move on to the physiotherapist. The physiotherapist is very much a musculoskeletal type assessment, but in this case it's not just can you move your arms and legs, it's more functionally based. So the physiotherapist will do things like getting them to walk backwards and forwards over a 10-metre strip, for instance, to see how fast they can do this task. Maybe lifting a, a ball and placing it on top of a shelf, up and down, up and down, to see how they function, how they're able to do basic tasks. Because management here is not necessarily going to be cure, it's going to be managing both their pain and their life so they can get the best out of both. 
and then they'll move on to the nurse and the nurse will do a more psychosocial assessment where they will look at their their um, living situation, their spouse, their uh, relationship with others, things like sex life comes into it and so on. All of this is then noted down as well. Once that's finished, the three of us get together as a team for a few minutes, discuss what we've found, and then we bring the patient in as the fourth member of the team. So the patient then is drawn into that assessment. We discuss what we found and ask the patient's comments on what we found, and we then develop a plan based on the patient's needs and what we've seen as his needs, as well as what he or she sees as his needs. And then from there we can move forward into, into treatment. So having assessed the person's needs and ability, what happens next? Well, firstly, can I roll back a second before they even being assessed? We have a triage system when the letters come in first from the different referrers. And at that stage, a number of them will go straight back to the general practitioner. Maybe they haven't tried certain basic medications. Maybe we've simply had a query from the GP as to how to proceed. We've got this far. Where do we go? We don't wipe them out of the service. We merely say, could you try this for three months? And then if not, send them into us. So that's the first part. Once they've actually been through the assessment team now, so they've been invited along to the assessment team, before they even arrive, we start including them in this teamwork. So we send them a number of questionnaires. We send them a catastrophizing scale, an anxiety and depression score, um, and a brief pain inventory. So we send them these three questionnaires so that they can actually put down on the paper what they feel or where they feel they are. And one of these scores has got a little diagram of the human body so they can actually draw on it and show them where their pain is. So they've already been involved at that stage. Now they've been through this assessment process where they've again been involved, and now we come out of this. So where do we go from here? Some of them simply need advice. And they will get that advice and we will send the advice back to the general practitioner. We might immediately change a drug if there's something obvious that needs doing and again back to the GP. Some of them will need that and other things. So classic example, a minor change in medication, a referral to podiatry because the person's flat-footed and needs orthotics, and a referral on to what we call a pain management program. We're not a curative service. If their pain was curable, they probably won't be coming to see us. Should patients be asking for this service? Absolutely. I think if, they, if they're at the limit of what their general practitioner is capable of, of managing, then I certainly think that they should have the right to, to request um, ongoing referral. But I think they also have to balance that with the realisation that their GPs and their, their doctors are pretty well trained and they need to move into that service when it's appropriate, not just on day one. So this really is for people where we have passed the um, point of natural healing, normal healing, and there's still an ongoing problem. And those are the patients who we need to refer in. But at that stage, the sooner the better. Because people who are not yet off work, people who are still working but maybe are moving towards a situation where they might end up being off work, those are the patients we we need to get sooner rather than than later. That in-between phase, if I can put it that way. I went to a pain control clinic in Brunchless, um, which was an offshoot from St Thomas's in London, and I found it excellent. Well, just to remind you that Airing Pain featured that residential pain clinic at Brontlees in Mid Wales, mentioned there by Jean Smith last year. And you can download all editions of Airing Pain, and that particular programme is number five, from our website at painconcern.org.uk. You were assigned a physiotherapist each patient and they work specifically to you and your problems. We agreed to disagree in the end. She wanted me to do certain things and I said no. 
and I said it's my back not yours I said I will do what I can so we still stayed friends <laughs> how was you after the course then good for a, for a while did you have to keep up any exercises well you were supposed to yes did I living on my own I need that incentive I find with a lot of things these days I need that little push that incentive to do things if I'm in a class or with other people I do them fine but on my own I tend not to do them but isn't that the same for most of us that things like pain management programs and I've done the expert patient program I've done that as well last and, year and you're fired up immediately but the follow-up is the, is the most important thing well I went to that last year and I found that very good they had a relaxation CD and we were given a book at the end of the course and that relaxation CD is one of the best that I've ever um, heard Jean Smith and later in the year I'll be taking part in Arthritis Care's Challenging Pain Programme that's for people with all sorts of chronic pain conditions not just for those with arthritis I'll report back to you on airing pain how I get on but it does seem that self-management is a key element of living with chronic pain Kevin Geddes is the Director of Self-Management with the Long-Term Conditions Alliance in Scotland. Self-management means different things to different people, but in essence it really is um, strategies and approaches that people take to managing their own condition, either themselves in partnership with their families, carers, with health professionals. Different ideas that people have about looking after themselves and getting involved in their own condition, really. Allowing them to get on and really enjoy the things that they want to do in their life um, without focusing too much on the kind of clinical aspects of their condition, really. A lot of the work that we do is across different sectors, um, across the voluntary sector, across the NHS, across local authorities. Um, but really at the heart of that is always the experience of the people who live with long-term conditions or care for people in their family that live with long-term conditions. All the ideas and approaches that we've been involved with so far have come from people living with long-term conditions themselves um, who know best how to manage their condition and know best how to react to their body and know best who to ask for for support when they need that. So really, I guess, the message is that we want people to get more involved and and tell us um, what ideas are missing uh, and what ideas would work best for them. The key message is that people should get involved really in in the management of their own condition uh, and really step up a little bit and uh, see what they can do for themselves. Um, And it's not about being alone in that process. Um, There's lots and lots of support that people can access um, in the community, in the voluntary sector, in the health service and from the local authority that can help them to live better lives. And I guess to help people feel in control of their conditions so that their condition's not in control of them. When I phoned you up last week and said that your name had been passed on to me, that I should speak to you. Yes. I know, and from when I arrived this morning, that you were petrified of speaking in front of a <laughs> microphone which is why you've brought your very good friend Jeff along with you to yes. help you out. And work colleague. And yes. work colleague. Yes. But you did say to me on the phone, well, I need to be putting something back anyway. I used to help run a support group. I also worked voluntarily 
for about 10 years in the mental health network. Just helping in a support worker or voluntary sector or whatever it is, does that help you? Yes. I suppose to give something back to the community, to give something back to other people who have been in similar positions and you think you're the only one. You don't realise that there are other people out there who suffer the same or even more than what you do. We're coming to the end of this edition of Airing Pain, so there's just time to remind you that if you want to put a question to our panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website, which is painconcern.org.uk. And I'll leave you with Jean and her friend Jeff Williams to recall what happened when she became involved in teaching young disabled children to swim. I didn't feel any self-worth at the time and there was one incident where there were two swimming teachers there and they couldn't get this little girl to go in the pool and I sat and I talked to her and we played on the steps in the pool and then she came round the pool with me. It was such an achievement because the teachers had failed <laughs> and it was great and it, well, I did it for a few years. A number of times you said you didn't, you didn't have any self-worth. Did the children help with this? Yes, because children don't judge you, adults do. How do you know the children took to you? What what did the children used to do? Tell me all the secrets. <laughs> yeah, what, what, how did they tell you the, the secrets? The mothers and fathers would come in and say, well, I know quite a bit about you. <laughs> <laughs> the kids the would tell you all the how secrets. How did the children used to take you? They used to come over. Once I went into the pool, they'd all come over and we'd all toddle off to the jacuzzi and have our daily conflab. <laughs> <laughs> that made you feel oh, a lot better. Brilliant, yeah.